It's necessary to often remind yourself that conversion is a miracle. Conversion is a miracle. It is an act of God upon the heart of the sinner where real and deep change has occurred. The metaphors in the Bible include wonderful imagery to describe this. Imagery like moving from death to life. It's pretty drastic. Moving from darkness into light. Being in the chains and shackles of sin to being free in Christ Jesus. Now some people who are believers might say something like, listen, I don't think I have a very exciting testimony. And I know what they mean by that. You know, they weren't part of an international mob ring or something in the world. And they're like, you know, I didn't get saved out of that. And yet, if they can say as Christians, I have been brought from darkness to light, from death to life, that sounds pretty exciting to me. If they can say heaven came down and glory filled my soul, or at the cross I first saw the light and the burden in my heart rolled away. If, if they say these things, then they are able to say what every believer in Christ is able to say, no matter the circumstances in which God has worked. It is a miracle. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper says that Christian conversion is a supernatural, radical thing. The heart is changed, he says, and the evidence for it is not just new decisions, not just new decisions, but new affections, new affections, desires to know and love and worship and follow Christ prior to conversion. That is not what the heart longs for. Okay, that is the heart loves sin, is committed to self above all, and that is not what the heart is longing for in terms of pursuing Christ and following Christ from the heart. So conversion, to become a person who from the heart longs to know and love God, that is the result of a miracle. Piper is right, it is a supernatural and radical thing. We desire God. Bringing these realities of following Christ, being a disciple of the Lord, into our study of Proverbs connects in this way. When we think of the path of righteousness or the path of unrighteousness, or living as the wise or living as the fool, we are recognizing that the difference between those paths and the difference between the wise and the fool is a difference God has made in the heart. From the heart. People are seeking to build life upon the truth and knowledge of Jesus Christ like the wise builder in Matthew 7. We are not just wanting people to hear the word and say, I need to make some new decisions about things, I guess. Anybody can decide to make some new decisions. We're talking about a deeper thing that brings about fruitfulness in decision making, but is beneath the surface of human management of things or deliberation about this or that. But within the heart, a fountain of life God has opened by the Spirit where you are new. You're not an improved version of the former you. You're new. You're in Christ. 
And that makes a difference. The verses this morning should be thought of in the context of these ideas. Because as a believer we come to Proverbs. As Christian scripture. Another chapter to help us be guided in the way of wisdom. To follow the Lord and from the heart Lord willing. In verse 1. The writer points out a reality of a woman who builds or tears down her house. The wisest of women, Solomon says, builds her house. But folly, with her own hands, tears it down. Well, she's not actually pictured here as being responsible to go engage in construction work on her house. Though she might incline and enjoy that very kind of thing. This is a metaphor, isn't it? It's a metaphor, this house, for the life and household of the woman. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly, with her own hands, tears it down. This, of course, doesn't exclude the reality that husbands can also build their house and also tear it down. The focus here is the responsibility and moral agency of the woman in the home. The metaphor of a house and even the language of wise and foolish woman, that's an, that's an earlier binary in Proverbs, isn't it? Where woman wisdom and woman folly have been depicted as inviting people to listen to them. These, uh, these uh, words of wisdom and folly being personified. As figures saying, come and be wise with me. Or, if you're a woman folly, beckoning people to come and join you in the depths of destruction. Though it doesn't seem that way with her first invitation. The wisest of women, and the other one being folly with her own hands in contrast there. This must mean the earthly expressions in the life of real people. The wisest of women builds her house. Well, that's what's desirable then. Even though you can have something wrong with the house that needs to, that uh, must mean it gets torn down for good reasons, tearing down here isn't because of that. Tearing down here is the action of what ought not to be done. Building house is what ought to be done, and the setting is her home. How would a woman build her house? How would a woman behave in a way with wisdom in her home? And if she's married, then behaving with her husband in this way. If she has children, then living as the wisest of women with her whole family this way. I think the first and immediate answer must be the wisest of women builds her house as she fears the Lord. That is at the bedrock of all of the disciples' work as the uh, man or woman, as the old or the young in Proverbs. Fearing the Lord. Which means the wise woman cares that from the heart she's living in a way to honor and revere God. She wants to please the Lord. She wants to glorify the Lord. That's not like a once a week kind of thing where I know Sunday's coming up when I'm going to go and honor God. And rather, the wisest of women recognizes that wherever I am, the Lord is worthy. And however I am to conduct uh, my activities in the world according to the world... God, in His Word, has given specific direction and guidance of how to live wisely for Him. And therefore, the woman who is wise builds her house, which is a way of speaking of an edifying activity, strengthening, installing, and firming up the home. Building up her home is contrasted with tearing it down. 
So we want to think about building and tearing down and fundamentally fearing the Lord is there. But Proverbs speaks of other activities. For example, um, one particular Old Testament scholar says that women in the ancient world, according to Proverbs 31, thought about the needs of their household and sought to how to meet and attend to those. She would care about the state and condition and honor of her husband. She would think about what her children need as well if she has children. She ministers to those who are in need in Proverbs 31 verse 20. She thinks about what is good not just for her home but for her neighbor as well outside the home. In other words, she lives in such a way as a wise woman to love God and love neighbor. And the closest neighbors for her are those in her home. So if she is to love her neighbor, that is not something that starts outside the walls, but rather begins inside the walls as she seeks to fear the Lord. The contrast is with woman folly. In a real life situation, the practical level of real people in real homes, someone who engages in a folly, a rebellious and folly ridden way of life with her own hands tears it down. Just think of that image for a moment. You come upon an actual home and somebody's out there and for no good reason and no justification, they've got all the demolition tools and they're just going away. You know, you you see this woman going at the walls and going at the roof and and she's just tearing it apart. And you think, why is she tearing it apart with her own hands? And this isn't even some kind of natural disaster or something beyond her control, but rather responsibility is placed at her feet that with her own hands, she is beginning to demolish what she's been entrusted to nurture. How would a foolish woman tear down her home? I think just like building the house has imagery uh, laden throughout Proverbs, so does this uh, folly-ridden woman. The folly is seen in different ways, like let's say speech in the home that is searing and critical. Words to the children and husband that are leveling or domineering. How would a foolish woman tear down her home? What if her words are manipulative and deceptive? What if on and on and over and over again, she simply seeks her way above all? What if she ignores actually her own faults and sins? And much easier, therefore, to focus on the faults and the sins of others around her in the home. What if she just neglects the discipline of her children? Well, we thought last week about Proverbs 13 and in verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And that means that in taking to account the good present and future of the child, the woman would be tearing down her home if she did not care about the well-being of the obedient children. What if she doesn't care about how anybody spends their time or what they're doing as long as she is just left alone? There are different ways we can think practically. How might a woman build her house? How might a woman tear it down with her own hands? And of course, these are not exhaustive uh, suggestions, but ways to get us thinking, all right, if I'm in home and I've got others perhaps in my care to steward and to nurture and to love, am I acting and speaking in ways that build that house? Or am I acting and speaking in ways that are tearing it down with my own two hands? In verse 2, what lies behind the woman of verse 1 lies behind both men and women, young and old, who are wise or foolish. This gets at a heart issue expressed in the kind of thing you see in verse 1, but of more than just verse 1. Verse 2 says, 
Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is devious in his ways despises him. Walks. That's the metaphor for living in Proverbs. If you're walking, you're on a path, you're heading in a direction, you're making certain decisions along the way, it's what your walk looks like. Whoever walks in uprightness must mean, with that word uprightness, you are choosing to pursue what is right. Upright. You're choosing to pursue what is right and therefore honoring to the Lord. Because the Lord is righteous, because His commands are good, His commands are wise, Living or pursuing what is upright means you are seeking to reflect in your decisions what pleases God. The one who himself is right. The one who is the fountain of all wisdom. That affects the way that you walk. But what, where does that come from? Whoever walks in uprightness, what animates that from the inside? It, it comes from the fear of the Lord. Verse 2, first half of this verse says whoever walks in uprightness... Fears the Lord. That's what it comes from. The one who seeks what is right in their words and in their actions does so because in their heart they seek to honor and revere the Lord. They love God. To fear God in Proverbs means to, in the heart, love and honor God. It's more than just some kind of shaking, trembling feeling. Oh, I'm afraid. The believer who knows the Lord is Worshiping and honoring him from from Psalm 25. We heard in our call to worship, didn't we? That the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to live out a love for God in all of life. But that's the one who fears the Lord. Something else is animating other activity. What about the one who is devious? What's behind that? Well, I'll focus on that phrase devious for a moment. What's it mean to be a devious person? Well, a devious person is someone who deviates from a norm. They have, they have deviated from and are devious because of some kind of standard that has gone awry in their heart and words and life. They are, you might say, of crooked character. A devious person has words that are crooked and ways that are crooked because his heart is crooked. Their character is unrighteous. Their words are untrustworthy. The choices they make are crooked. And the path they walk is a crooked path that heads to destruction. What's behind that, though? Those words, that decision, where is that animating from? A heart that despises the Lord. Oh, friends, think of the gravity of that expression. To despise something is such a strong word. And somebody might think in their own heart, well, I just don't think that I do. And even though I don't honor the Lord with my words and actions, and even though I'm not pursuing the worship and glory of God in my life, I don't think in my heart I despise the Lord. You see, this is where the Bible knows us better than we know us. And we are faced here with the reality that what lies in the heart of the one who resists the wisdom and commands of God is a heart that wants to be God in their life. They despise the supremacy and sovereignty of God. They don't want His commands over their life. They are in charge. So the idea of God being God is an unthinkable thought to them. They hate it. They despise it. They loathe it. When they think about the God of the Bible, their hearts are not filled with delight. They are are not filled with peace or praise. They resist the Lord. They don't follow Him. They don't want to. Their heart is not just 
desensitized or callous to different acts of wickedness or evil in the world. They have a real will resistance. They don't want the Lord. And they might think to themselves, because of what I want in life that will bring me joy and happiness and satisfaction, I want to resist the Lord and go about it my way. I'm going to chart my course and I'm going to think strategically about what I think I most need. But I think John Piper's right in his book Providence when he says the fear of the Lord is not the opposite of joy. It is the depth and seriousness of it. In other words, the promises of sin, we must meditate for a moment on the fact that the promises of sin do not deliver. And they bring into one's life ruin and destruction, social and relational harm and conflict, embarrassment on all fronts and realms. But the fear of the Lord and following Christ in joy and peace, those things go together. So the author is right. The fear of the Lord is not the opposite of joy in the Lord. In fact, the Lord takes our joy so seriously that he calls us to walk in the fear of his name. That we might know in our hearts what it is to delight in him and walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. And in bringing glory to God, finding delight in our own hearts running deep. Sin does not satisfy you. And sin will not deliver on its promises. So dear brother, just by way of application and exhortation, dear brother and sister, when you think of verse 2 here, I want you to be one who fears the Lord in the heart. And that you're convinced in your heart and convicted of the truth that sin will not bring you where you wish it might. But instead it is God who is faithful and all of His promises are true. And the Lord does not have your joy in uh, in view when He says, uh, uh, don't pursue Let me put it this way. He's not squelching joy when he says, don't pursue sin. He indeed has your greatest soul's condition in view when he warns of evil and exhorts us to fear his name. Fear of the Lord is not the opposite of joy, but the depth and seriousness of it. You want to take your joy even more seriously and the state of your heart and being satisfied more seriously Then follow and honor the Lord. One of the ways that uprightness will be expressed, one of the ways that deviousness will be expressed, is in speech. It's unavoidable. Unavoidable. Even if the fool can can prevent being seen and speaking as a fool for quite a length of time, it's like pressure building up in a bottle that's got a lid on it that's eventually going to pop and explode. The mouth of the fool is addressed in verse 3, and the lips of the wise contrasted with it. Whoever walks in uprightness, part of your walk includes your talk. Which means those who walk in uprightness, they also care about talking in uprightness. And those whose ways are devious know that one of the reasons their ways are devious is the way they use their words deceptively. What comes from this in the fool's future? In the fool's path, by the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. Now the rod on somebody's back is a picture of punishment, chastisement, difficulty. Nobody's looking for that. Nobody's saying, okay, you know what I'm hoping for? The rod on the back. It's this graphic picture of some kind of lashing or punishment. Now it's on the back of the fool, but where did the rod proceed from? 
We have to look at the whole of this expression here. The rod is not in somebody else's hand. The mouth of the fool is that from which comes the rod on the back of the fool for punishment. In other words, the speech of the ungodly can become their very undoing. The words of the unrighteous are like seed being sown that will reap a harvest of ruin and difficulty and conflict. Have you realized that in pursuing sin, you are your own worst enemy at that point? That the rebellion that you have given yourself over to, from that will come a very rod that you yourself will reap upon your own life? And the mouth of the fool is brought up here because the fool's speech inflicts pain. The deception and the manipulation and the scorn and the condescension and the mockery and the slander and all the different things our speech can can, uh, commit is not indifferent or harmless. And it's not only something that's inflicted upon others, but even upon the fool. You might think, or in the fool's mind, they they might think, well, at least I'm going to turn out fine. Everything's going to work out for me. Proverbs 14.3 does not want the fool to presume that with that kind of delusion. As if the sins we commit will only affect the others. That in itself is a factor that ought to be put into the whole equation. Absolutely. But even for the fool's own life, foolishness is not even in the best interest of the fool. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. Becoming his own worst enemy. Not only harming others, but his own life as well. Do you want your words to bring less harm to the lives of others? And that you not reap what you have sown upon your own life and back? Then friend, pursue the Lord. Commit yourself to the Word of God. To know and love the truth of God. And expose the lies of sin for what they are. So that your choices and your speech especially, will be shaped. The second part of this phrase, the second part of this verse, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Let's put the the word right there where them is. The lips of the wise will preserve the wise. That's who's meant by the them. The lips of the wise will preserve themselves, the wise. In other words, the speech of the fool... Is not even in his own best interest. But wise speech is in the best interest of the wise. In other words, in verse 3, when we use our words with honesty and integrity, when we seek to live in the light and above reproach, when we seek to be faithful to our word and follow through in our commitments, when we engage in relationships with others with our speech that brings honor to them and dignity to them, when we use our words in ways that honor Christ and love neighbor, that has an effect on your life as well. Amen. One of the things you should ask is, what is it that I want to start affecting my life? Foolish speech or wise words? Because then you will choose with the words you employ every day and the relationships that you're cultivating and the words you use with them. Don't you realize you are cultivating and sowing what will produce fruit? I wonder if you'll like the fruit when you taste it. Now, the last part of our passage today might not seem at first like something that connects 
to the wise and the fool and uh, those that would despise the Lord in their foolishness and those that would pursue uprightness with speech or conduct. Here you have this statement about a manger and oxen and crops. Where does this come from? Verse 4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Now, it doesn't look like there's any command here on the face of it, okay? It's not as if it uh, is saying something with an imperative. It's an observation about life. And how does that tie in to living wisely? In verse 4, the observation is very ancient worldish where the predominantly agricultural communities and the use of livestock would involve the recognition that keeping livestock, feeding livestock, caring for them can be taxing, dirty, messy. And that life is a lot like that. Verse 4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. One writer puts it this way. We are in the world of the ancient reader where getting food from the ground was partly due to rigorous work of the livestock, but caring for livestock was messy and they had to be tended in order to remain healthy, including even appropriate shelter. Cleaning up anything is toilsome, especially if the scope is broad enough in the mess and occurs often enough to wear on you. Cleaning up is toilsome, and whatever is toilsome becomes tiresome. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Okay? Like, I know that you know this. So the writer here is talking about oxen and, and crops and a manger being clean. But we can recognize, even figuratively and metaphorically, that in our lives we know what this is like, though we might not be farmers on land. In fact, the farmer might think to themselves, the manger is dirty again. I just cleaned it. Why did I do that if it was only going to get dirty once more? I just got everything the way that I want it. Looks nice, smells eh, okay, uh, better than it did. But the, the farmer knows that while tending and caring for things, mess is inevitable. The uncleanness of the manger is inevitable. The only way the manger is going to stay clean is if there are no oxen. I mean, that's what it says, okay? Verse 4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. And because the, the interaction with the oxen in the manger isn't happening. And then the food that's put there is not a, a worry. If there are no oxen, the manger is clean. And at first glance, and in terms of immediate convenience, we might think that's preferable. We might think, well, listen, I don't have to clean up the manger because I don't have any oxen. Ah, but you're not thinking long enough. You're not thinking long term. What's the second part of the verse? Because while the beginning of verse 4 is true, the end of verse 4 is also true. And while the beginning of verse 4 might seem like an immediate satisfying thing, oh, that manger is clean. And it stayed clean. Don't have any oxen. Look at that clean manger. It says in verse 4, abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. So in other words, If there are no oxen and therefore a clean manger, the manger might be clean, but you don't have any crops because there were no oxen to work them. We have all sorts of different phrases that we use economically and familially and culturally to speak about this kind of thing. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. You've got to spend money to make money. 
All kinds of uh, phrases like this that we use. One writer put it this way. There's no milk without a little manure as well. And, uh, and I, th- I think the point is when you picture these agricultural settings and even ways that our idioms and phrases can, uh, can, can try to apply it. Here's what we recognize. The immediate care for things can require investment from us with a long-term goal. Long-term perspective. This is the pursuit of of the wise. The wise walk a path aware that immediate gratification and convenience is not what should determine all of our decisions. But to love other people will mean inconvenience. To love others well and to deal with the needs of these in our lives, friends and neighbors and children and spouses and all the rest, parents and relatives. You think of all the, the, the spectrum of relationships God gives us. We think long term in loving them. And it's not because most immediately it seemed desirable, convenient, it was scheduled perfectly. Rather, we learn that you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. That to do what one ought to do, to live as one ought to live, requires mess. Put it this way. Most things in life that are really worth doing and pursuing are hard. And they require sacrifice. They require commitment. They require devotion, patience, perseverance, a perspective that plays the long game. The fool lives short-sightedly. Short-sighted spouses, short-sighted parents, short-sighted neighbors, short-sighted employees. Do you think about all the temptation of living in a short-sighted way? Wisdom will not result in that. Wisdom results in us seeing the temptation of living in a short-sighted, convenient way. I'd really like that manger to stay clean. But recognizing that the manger is worth the mess if I'm going to have oxen to produce the crop. Relationships. As one, this uh, book titled by Paul Tripp um, on relationships, the subtitle, A Mess Worth Making. I I really love that uh, subtitle because uh, even though the publisher greenlit it, it's the very kind of thing that this pastor and author Paul Tripp would say in, uh, in his teachings on relationships in life. We recognize relationships are messy. And if you want a clean manger, then don't ever get to know anybody. But the crops and the abundance will not come in your life either. Rather, the abundance of what it means in life and vitality and relationships that we cultivate, the manger won't stay clean. And when you clean it, it will get dirty again. But we can find ourselves easily in our short-sightedness more exercised and exacerbated by the frustration of the mess than recognizing the long-term gain that all of this is leading to anyway. Let me speak to moms for a moment. And parents as a whole, yes. But I know that uh, multiple moms here in our congregation are toying, toy, uh, you, are, um, you are juggling various uh, responsibilities, not just with work, perhaps in the home, but outside the home as well. And some of you are with children with the kind of hours and days during the week in little years. And this particular article from 2018 by a woman named Caroline Albanese 
I found an excerpt encouraging on this clean manger, messy manger spectrum. The writer says, a messy manger is a sign of life. It's a sign of life. The toys on the floor symbolize imaginations expanding. Explosions of thought as young minds learn and grow. The crumbs on the floor after lunch are a reminder that little bellies just got full and that God has been faithful to provide us with food. The dusty dresser is a visual message that we have spent our time elsewhere. (laughs) The mud on the floor mat is a reminder that my son and husband just had a blast outside together making memories. So... She says there is adventuring at the playground and water splashing at bath time everywhere and running around the house pretending we're all manner of different things. There is abundance. But the truth from Proverbs 14.4 is there isn't abundance and a clean manger at the same time. Which means there is a recognition that we allow and recognize the investment so that we're not living short-sightedly. I mean, I know, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that in Bethlehem, the Lord wasn't like, I'd just like that manger to stay clean if you don't mind. But instead, in Bethlehem, all those centuries ago, the Lord Jesus, born in a manger, and the abundance of God's redemptive investment that followed. Can you imagine if somebody said, oh, I'm sorry, Mary, uh, we've just had this manger cleaned. And, uh, and we, you know, we would like it to stay that way. I know you're in this sort of predicament. No, God certainly thought that the Bethlehem manger was the perfect place to make a mess. And for the wonderful thing that followed and the good news for all the nations to guide us in wisdom and life and abundance. I mean, think about what Christ has brought. Pardon from sin and complete atonement. Peace with God and total reconciliation. Everlasting life and unending glory with Him. Friends, in these verses this morning, considering what God has done, what He has brought into the world He has made and loved, we can trust Him, believe all His promises, expose the lies of sin, walk uprightly in the fear of the Lord, and know that our joy in Him will be true and real and deep. We don't have to live as the fool whose words and ways not only bring harm to others, but bring harm upon himself or herself. We can submit our tongue and our decisions to the Lord, seeking to glorify Him in all things. And certainly with verse 4 in mind, may the Lord give us wisdom to not live short-sightedly. That as we go about the different relationships He's allotted us, and the different realms and circles in which we, we travel, May we live in such a way that we are focused not merely on the short-term inconveniences or frustrations, but we persevere through them because of long-term goals and commitments. That is the way the wise will work. That is the way the wise will live. What we need is the reality of conversion in our hearts. What we need is the God who loves sinners to work in us in such a way where our heart delights in His ways. Where we walk in submission gladly to His Word. Let us not despise the Redeemer of sinners. Let us not despise the One who has come for us in His Son to rescue us from our sin. Let us delight in Him and hope in Him 
and honor Him and exalt Him and treasure Him all our days. Will you pray with me?